Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we're taking a look at the book of Genesis, which takes us back to our origins and answers the question, how did we get here? But maybe not in the ways you might expect. It's a story told through the eyes of men and women who are just trying to figure out why the world is the way it is. Men and women who loved and quarreled, believed and doubted, failed countless times, and yet fell into God's grace every time. By examining their stories, we find ourselves living variations of the same story, one of faith and doubt, failure and grace. By going back to their stories, we see that God has always been faithful, even from the very beginning. We're so glad that you're here and encourage you to attend in person if you're able. Our weekend services are on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Good morning, Waterstone. It is so good to be back with you all this morning. I, I love Waterstone, and it really is an honor to be able to bring the word of God. So will you pray with me before we get started? Jesus, I ask that you will use the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to bring glory and honor to your name. Father, I pray that wherever we are at in our lives in this moment, God, that you will be meeting us in this space. Father, will you bring transformation that you have designed for us to become more like you. In your holy name I pray, amen. Well, there is a joke that we often tell at Alpha at the very beginning about a man who is a very wealthy oil man. He, he lives in Texas, he doesn't just have oil, but he has hundreds of thousands of acres of land. And not just that, but he also owns so much cattle. I mean, he is just rolling in it. This man does not have to count pennies for anything, but he also loves to throw a good party. And his parties, he would invite his friends and family members and really anyone who would agree to come. And at every party that he had, had, he would give everyone in attendance the very same offer. If you can swim from one side of my Olympic-sized pool to the other, I will offer you one of three things. You can have half of my land, which was a lot of land. You can have a million dollars, or I will introduce you to one of my very good-looking children and give you my blessing to marry them. Strangely enough, no one in all of the parties that he ever gave took him up on this offer. Why is that, you ask? Well, his pool was filled with hungry sharks. So, one day, same kind of party, he makes this grand offer, and suddenly, splash, and everyone looks to watch this gentleman swim as fast as he can across the pool and pop up on the other side. And this Texas gentleman was shocked, but he's a man of his word, so he goes over to this gentleman and says, Son, fantastic job, what would you like? Do you want a million dollars? And this man huffing and puffing, sopping wet, just shakes his head and he's like, okay, well, do you want half my land? And he just shakes his head again. And then he goes, I know you, you're looking for love. Who can I introduce you to? And this man says, I don't want any of that. I just wanna know who pushed me into the pool. I think many of us in our lives look back and go, how did I get here? What happened? And I think that this story of Joseph is a little bit of the same, of asking, what happens when life doesn't go as planned? How did I get to this moment 
when everything else seemed to be going in a different trajectory. And so this morning, we're actually going to be looking through 14 chapters of Genesis, from Genesis 37 to 50. So if you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to start with Genesis 37. By the time we get to about Genesis 43, we're probably going to be at the top of the hour. So we'll just head on out, and you guys can have a great week. I'm kidding. We're going to look at a few little pieces of Joseph's story. There is so much in this, so if you want to know more, know that we are going Genesis 37 through 50. I'm not going to touch on everything, but we are going to largely look at Joseph's life. So for those of you who don't know who Joseph is, he is one of 12 brothers who have the same father, Jacob, who we talked about last week, but they all have different mothers. Now, Joseph is the son of the very favorite wife, Rachel. And this favoritism transfers down to Joseph in in a myriad of ways. One of them, Joseph doesn't really have to work when the rest of his brothers do. And Joseph is given this very ornate jacket that costs way too much money and is very flashy that none of his brothers get. In fact, in Genesis, we're told his brothers hate him. They don't just dislike Joseph, they absolutely hate him. And some of this is not unmerited. We're told that Joseph is a little bit of an arrogant teenager. He tells lies about his brothers to get them in trouble, and he has, where we're going to begin with, some prophetic dreams that he is all too excited to tell his brothers about. So, we start Joseph's story with prophetic dreams, if I can spell, of grandeur. So basically, two dreams where he goes to his brothers and he's like, guess what? I had this dream that all of you are going to bow down to me. I'm going to be great and you all are going to bow and serve me. And his brothers are like, what? (laughs) You're the youngest. We are not bowing down to you. We hate you. And so Joseph's story starts in this place where he has visions of grandeur. And and the writer and author of Genesis is telling us by the fact that he has two dreams that affirm this, that this is a guarantee of what is going to happen in Joseph's life. And so we step on the scene here to very disgruntled and angry brothers who decide, you know what? Destiny may have said, you're going to be great. We're going to change that. There is no way we're letting this happen. And so in Genesis verse, or chapter 37, verses 23 to 24, Joseph is sent to his brothers, and they scheme of, should we kill him? Well, we don't want to deal with our father's guilt, so what's another way that we can get rid of him and really make sure that his fate is not greatness? And so when he was far off, his brothers scheme. And they, when he came close to them, They stripped him of his robe, that very ornate jacket that, of course, he wore everywhere. And they took him and threw him in a cistern, which is also known as a pit. Now, the author tells us that the pit doesn't have any water, so that we know Joseph didn't drown. But while he's in this pit, his brothers try to figure out, now, what can we do with him? We can't kill him. Oh, but there are some Ishmaelites who are slave owners who come right at the perfect moment. So they sell their brother into slavery. He was young, he was good looking, he would get a pretty good price, and they could use a little bit more cash. 
And so Joseph gets sold into slavery, and he ends up in a place called at Potiphar's house. I've used all P's so that we can remember the trajectory. So we go from prophetic dreams to pit, and now Potiphar's house. In Genesis 39, verse 20, it says, Joseph's master, a.k.a. Potiphar, then takes Joseph and puts him in prison. Now, why did Joseph end up in prison? Well, Potiphar's wife had a liking for Joseph because he was young and handsome, and Potiphar probably had lost a little bit of his youth, and so she offers him the chance to be with one of the most premier women in all of Egypt, to which Joseph says no. I do not want to be killed for sleeping with my boss's wife. Please get away from me. And this woman, who is very angry, then falsely accuses Joseph of trying to sexually harass him. So Joseph goes to prison. Now this prison is where all of the king's officials went. So we're not just talking any jail. These are the enemy of Pharaoh. Joseph is among the lowest of the low. And so he goes from a place of prophetic grandeur into a place of prison. This is a space of not just what happened in life. It didn't quite go as I planned, but there's something else that's happening. You see, at the beginning of this story, we know Joseph is in Canaan. He is in the promised land that God had given to the Israelites. But here, Joseph is in a place that has been used over and over again to symbolize exile. And this is Egypt. So not only does Joseph go from this idea of, I'm going to be great, I'm going to rule over you, to a prison. He goes from promised land, closeness to God's promises, to further and further away into exile. Now the word for pit in Genesis is also the word that Joseph uses when he describes his time in prison. This is also a word that is used for death. So as Joseph travels through life, he is not just experiencing pits, he's experiencing death and exile. There's a map of, of the ancient Near East up here that you can see there's Canaan in the upper right-hand corner. That is the promised land. That, that is the bounty, the best place that you can be. And then if you look throughout scripture, it always says going down to Egypt. You will never find a scripture that says, oh, we're going up to Egypt. Why is that? It's because it's always a symbol of exile. And so Joseph travels down and down and down, further and further away to that bottom left-hand corner into Egypt, far from God's promise, far from God's provision. And he is in a pit. I want to pause here because I think we often remember Joseph's story for the great things like his dreams or his coat or, or the eventual greatness, and we'll get there. But I think so much more of our lives are spent in pits, in places of death, in places where life didn't go as planned. 
And so I want to pause right here and speak to three people who are likely in this room and just talk a little bit about life in the pits. For those of you who may have experienced a pit and are now out of it, I want to talk to you first. So you've come out of this place, and maybe you're feeling relief. Maybe you're just so grateful that you're not in that space anymore. You want to get as far away from it as possible. And so don't remind me of it. Don't let me think about it. I want to live life out of the pit. My encouragement to you all is to reflect. Reflect on that time in the pit. I know that that might be a painful encouragement, but I think that there's something happening in there. There is meat. There is fruit to be born in that reflection and in that remembering of what is there because pits are not purposeless. There, there is something to be gained in that space. So if you have just come out of a pit, my encouragement to you, reflect. For those of you who are currently in a pit, this is the second group I want to talk to. First, I am so sorry. I, this past week, have interacted with a number of very dear friends who are in a pit, and for some of them, there doesn't seem to be an end to it. This is a really, really tough place to be. And I, I want to encourage you, I think pits, <laughs> more frequently than not, are not our fault. We live in a broken world. We live in a place that is affected by, by sin of others, by brokenness, by broken relationships, and sometimes we just feel the weight, or, or we have to be in a place of the consequences of others' actions. So I am so sorry, but I want to encourage you and remind you that God is with you in this space. God has not caused this pit. I don't want to look at the story of Joseph and say, well, God threw Joseph into prison. That is not what I'm saying in this space. God does not make death happen in your life, but God is with you in the midst of the pit. And third, for those of you who are, are sitting here going, you know, I don't really resonate with Joseph's story. I'm not in a pit last time I was in a pit was either never or such a long time ago. Actually, things are going really well. I want to celebrate that. That is a great thing that you are not currently in that space, but I want to encourage you that you actually have a really significant role for those people who are either in pits or who have just come out of a pit. First and foremost, I want to encourage you, do not interpret someone else's circumstances. Please don't theologize the reason why someone is in their pit and then try to tell them it's some sort of sin that they need to confess. We can easily look at Joseph's story and say, well, you were arrogant and therefore that's why you were put in the pit. But don't do that <laughs> because there's so much more that's happening for people who are currently in pits or who are coming out of them. Your role as someone who is not in a pit is to be an encourager is to be a reminder of God's presence and goodness in the midst of difficulty. 
God is with us, and you can be the person who empowers someone in the midst of that place. Because as we will see in just a moment, there is another reality that is coexisting in the midst of all of this. And that, as the author will tell us, is that God is with Joseph. Not just God was with Joseph here, and then God was far away from Joseph down here, but in every single step of the way, God is with Joseph. We see this starting in Genesis 39, verse 2. And I'm just going to highlight pieces of this for you. It says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. In Potiphar's house, Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes. And the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. God was with Joseph in his pit. And he caused blessing in that place. Joseph is in exile, but God causes blessing because nothing that is put in the Lord's hands is ever lost. Let me say that again. Nothing, nothing that is put in God's hands is ever lost. Fast forward then into prison after Joseph has now been removed so far from his family that he's in a prison with people he doesn't know. It says that the Lord was with him and showed kindness and again granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. God didn't cause the pits that Joseph was in, but God was with Joseph in those pits. See, the thing is not to learn how to get out of the pits in our life. We, we don't want to just avoid them entirely. Part of, I think, our lives here on earth is to learn how to get good in the pits. Because most of our story happens in pits. Most of the stories of people around us are in pits because we live in a broken world. I love coffee. Do I have any other coffee lovers in here? My people. I am a bit of a coffee snob, though. And my husband will shake his head very vigorously at that. I not only know what region of coffee I love, I know how I like the beans to be processed. And every time we go to a new place, whether it's a, just a town away or a state away, the first thing I do is pull out my phone and look up what are the craft coffee shops in the area because I want to visit all of those places. I love coffee. But there is one type of coffee that I just cannot get on board with. And if any of you here are big fans, please come up to me afterwards and tell me why. Do any of you know what Kapi Luwak is? Oh wow, last night, like half of the audience knew. Okay, so Kapi Luwak is the most exclusive and expensive coffee that exists in the world. In fact, a bag of this, like you would buy at any coffee shop, 12 ounces, will run you about $250. Yeah, this coffee, is apparently the most smooth, caramel-like coffee that you will ever taste. You know where it comes from? The digested beans that have been excreted by an animal called a civet, which is kind of like a weasel. 
AKA Copy Luwak is coffee poop. Someone decided while they were foraging in the forest and saw coffee beans in the form of poop, why don't we brew this? And therefore, the most exclusive coffee was born. Why? I don't know. I think it's gross, but it is a delicacy. Because there's something that happens with this coffee bean when a civet eats it, that the digestive enzymes that interact with a coffee berry somehow break down some of the bitterness and acidity, leaving a very sweet and aromatic coffee. See, there's something about the pit of this animal's stomach that bring about a change to sweetness that couldn't have happened in any other way. This is a transformation that brings about something that is softer, less bitter, less acidic. This is the same way that sometimes pits in our lives bring about a change, a sweetness, a softening that could not have happened in any other way. See, Joseph experienced God in the midst of every single one of his pits, and that brought about transformation in his life. Pits are not just places to get out of, but they are places to thrive in. And God with us in those pits is the hope and possibility of transformation. God brings transformation in even the most dire of circumstances. So thank you for being here this evening, or this morning, that's not evening. You guys can head on out, think about your pits, and we're going to be good. No? Oh, okay. You're smart enough, you know I didn't use the other half of the paper. And you've probably heard the rest of Joseph's story, that there's something else that happens. See, Joseph goes, from arrogance, we have prophetic dreams, Pitts, Potiphar, prison. But in this space of prison, God is doing something. See, Joseph has two friends there, a baker and a cupbearer, and they each have a dream. And they ask Joseph, what do these mean? Well, for the baker, bad news. It meant he was beheaded. For the cupbearer, good news. You're going to go back to Pharaoh's side and be his royal cupbearer again, which all of this happens. But before this cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh's side, Joseph has one request. Please, 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 please remember me. As soon as the cupbearer is next to Pharaoh, he promptly forgets, until Pharaoh has some very disturbing dreams. That says Pharaoh. <laughs> and all of a sudden, no one in the kingdom is capable of interpreting any of his dreams, and, and they keep disturbing him, and he's looking for someone who can interpret them, and suddenly the cupbearer, huh, I know someone. Let me bring this Hebrew who, know, who interpreted my dream, and now I'm here with you, so maybe he can do it for you. And so in Genesis 41, verses 14 through 16, this is what we read. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and when he was quickly brought from the dungeon, when he had shaved his and changed his clothes, he became before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. 
but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Pause. I will be great to, I cannot do it, but God will give you. There there is a transformation that's happening within Joseph in this space that is significant and necessary from arrogance to submission. God can do it. This is the moment of transformation in Joseph's life. So I love Pharaoh's response to him and, and really to everyone in the room. He goes, is there anyone in whom the spirit of God can be found? Because Joseph has told him, you know, you're going to have seven years of abundant crop. It's just going to be flowing from everything. But then seven years of famine are going to follow this. And you know what would be helpful? You should hire someone to not only help you get through the famine, but really to leverage the seven years of fantastic crop that are coming so that Egypt comes out on top. And Pharaoh thinks this is a fantastic idea. And something in him asks for someone who, in whom the spirit of God is. Pharaoh, a, a pagan leader, wants someone with the spirit of God. And that is Joseph. So Joseph is put in second in command over all of Egypt. Only in regard to the throne is Joseph under Pharaoh. See, again an important shift from an arrogant boy with prophetic dreams of his own greatness into a submission in whom the spirit of the living God is recognized. Joseph is being prepared for leadership through all of this. Again, nothing that is put in God's hands is ever lost. Every pit that Joseph experienced, God was with him. God was moving in a transformative way for where he would eventually end up, which is now second in command of the greatest superpower at that time. Charles Dickens wrote a book called Great Expectations. Maybe some of you have read this or or watched a movie, and it's about a boy who, who really has great expectations of how his life will turn out. He falls in love with this girl who breaks his heart, Estella. And Estella is a pretty cruel character, and eventually she decides to marry someone who isn't Pip, our main character, out of spite, because she doesn't believe she needs love. But at the end of the book, Estella is reflecting on the very cruel life that she has lived and the ways that she has been bent. And this is what she says to Pip. Suffering has been stronger than all other teaching and has taught me to understand what your heart, Pip's heart, used to be. I have been bent and broken, but I hope into a better shape. Pits can bring about a change and transformation into a better form of who we are. Again, God does not always cause pits, but God is at work in these pits. And his promise for you and I is that he will be with us. God does not leave us. He will be with us in the midst of all of these pits. So there are two important aspects of the story of Joseph 
in, in the resolution of this that I, I want to point out. Because I think at this point, we probably can all identify with part of Joseph's story, part of this hardship of we have experienced pits, we're human. If you haven't experienced a pit, you probably will sometime in your life. And so we can, we can feel, I know what the pit is like. I know what it's like to feel down and out. But the second half of this story is not quite as relatable to us. I don't think there are any second-in-command of national powers in this room. No? Okay. I, I don't know that any of us have gotten the greatness of being a pharaoh or almost like a pharaoh. And so there are two pieces of this story to point out. First is it's not a one-for-one. One. Our lives don't go from prophetic dreams into pits and transformation so that we become the second greatest superpower in the world. But there is a parallel and this is a truth for you and I, that God is with us in pits and God uses the pits in our lives to change us and transform us. Again, get good at being in a pit. Don't just avoid or try to get out of it because nothing, 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 nothing in God's hands is ever lost. The second piece of this is the eternal. And we're going to keep moving up into promise. God's promise is one of ultimate redemption. In the ark, not just of Joseph's story, but in all of scripture, what God is writing is a promise of restoration of all things. Joseph does get redemption in this space. We see this in one of the most famous verses in Genesis. Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Out of Joseph's transformation, his preparation for leadership, the whole known world at that time is saved. God is doing a work of transformation into promise and redemption. There is temporal redemption for Joseph. In this moment, he is forgiving his brothers. The brothers who hated him, who threw him in a pit, he forgives. But out of that is also redemption of the known world. God is doing amazing things through pits in Joseph's life and in your life. God uses our pits to change our world for his purposes. So while we may not see the eternal, this side of heaven, we do see glimmers of redemption here and now. See, the story, while Joseph is a main character, is not just about Joseph. It is about what God is ultimately doing to bring redemption for the whole world. It's not just about you but you play a significant part in God's plan of redemption. Does anyone know who Judy Human is? No. I, I didn't know who she was either, honestly, until I watched a Drunk History episode about her. I don't necessarily recommend Drunk History, but I do recommend looking up who she is. 
See, as, as an infant, she contracted polio, and this left her bound to a wheelchair for mobility for the rest of her life. And at the age of five, she was denied the ability to go to school because she was seen as a fire hazard because there was no way of getting her out of her classroom quickly enough if something were to happen. And while her parents advocated for her in her childhood, she really took up this mantle later on in life. So you and I may not know exactly who Judy Human is, but I can guarantee you, you have been impacted by her life. I wanna pause really quickly and make something very, very clear. Physical or mental disabilities are not pits, but they create hardships that can be pits. Again, a physical or a mental disability is not a pit. But I think that there are things that we can experience, like polio, that is a pit in our life. And, and sometimes this pit lasts for the entirety of our lives. And I am so sorry because I think you and I both know people, or maybe you are that person that just seem like they experience pit after pit after pit. But God is with us. See, Judy is a fantastic example of what it means to take a pit and be changed and to impact the world for redemption. The fact that we have slopes on every single sidewalk is a part of her story. See, she was a main contributor to the reason we have the American Disability Act. Why are there elevators and handicap spots? Because of Judy Human. She took a pit in her life and changed it so that not just her life was transformed, but the lives of so many others were impacted and transformed. God uses our pits for his ultimate redemptive purposes. So while this story does not end with everything restored, because you and I are still here in a broken world, it does end with a glimmer of hope, of God reminding his people that he is bringing them back to a space of redemption, that he is with them and his plan is working. You see, Joseph and his family are given a part of Egypt called Goshen. And I have the Hebrew up here so that you can kind of see there's, there's a similarity. There's a beautiful bookend within Genesis. It starts in the garden, which in Hebrew is a gimel nu, a gen. And then it ends in Goshen, gimel shin nu. And this is the author's way of telling us, while we are not back to this ultimate place of perfection, and redemption. God is moving the Israelites along the line. He's moving us closer and closer to his redemption, and he has not forgotten. So he brings them into a parallel garden where he is with them, where he is moving, and where he is working towards his ultimate plan. God is working in the midst of the pit, and his promises exist in the midst of the pit. So this morning we're going to sing one more song and whether you are in a pit, maybe you've just come out of a pit, maybe you are not in a pit and not anywhere near that, I want to encourage you to reflect, to ask God to reveal, God, where are you in this space? Because the promise that you and I have is that God will be with us in the pit. Maybe you don't see that right now and that's okay. 
But there will also be prayer ministers up here to pray with you, to encourage you. If you are not in a pit, be an encourager. If you are in a pit, know that God is with you. And take this time, whether that's reflection or singing or journaling or praying, whatever that might be, just take this time to ask God to reveal himself in the midst of a pit. See what happens. Will you pray with me? And then we'll sing this last song. God, we thank you that you are with us in the pit. We thank you that you have not left us. But God, we admit we don't always see how you are working. So Lord, will you show us how you are with us in the pit. In your holy name I pray, amen.